Have you ever wondered what sets apart companies at scale right from startup from those who don't? Well, the Genius at Scale podcast is here to answer that question. I interview CEOs from scaling companies and explore the counterintuitive practices that help them grow in ways that other companies don't. We'll also explore the biggest mistakes that almost wrecked them. Hi, I'm John Hitler. I'm a nine-time company founder and CEO. Now I coach CEOs in scaling companies. We'll be joined by these visionary leaders who've defied convention, challenged the status quo, and redefined the very essence of scaling. This is Genius at Scale. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Ken Fine. Ken is the CEO of Heap. Ken, introduce yourself to the audience. You bet, John. Great to be here today. Um, a little background about me. I'm from the East Coast originally. I was raised in a small town uh, in Connecticut by a uh, school teacher family, uh, mom and stepfather. Uh, put myself through college on a military scholarship. Served in the Navy as a physicist and an engineer for about five years. Uh, worked on complex new technologies for the submarine force. Uh, loved that. Worked in teams of people solving complex technical problems. Decided I wanted to take that skill set and learning to private industry. Uh, after the military, moved out to California, went to business school uh, at Stanford, and have spent now the last, oh, 25, 27 years in uh, early stage, growth stage, B2B SaaS, venture-backed businesses. Variety of wow. roles from product to marketing to customer success to COO to CEO. So is there, uh, it's, it's a fascinating background, especially the, the uh, both the school teacher and the military. Um, is there a common thread in all the companies you have worked in? Uh, obviously, B2B SaaS, but you said product and service. And is there a common thread that ties them all together? Yeah, there, there is a common thread. So my roles have changed. So I would think of myself personally more as a generalist uh, than as a specialist. And I've always enjoyed understanding systems and how things work together as a whole. I think that's why I've been attracted to being a CEO and then all the different roles leading up to that. But in terms of the themes across the company, there has been, which is I've tended to go to companies that were doing something interesting with large amounts of data, collecting data, and then applying, right. applying some type of algorithmic intellectual property on top of the data to create value from it. Uh, and it's been in many different industries, many different forms, well before we would refer to that as data science and artificial intelligence. And I think that comes from my background in engineering, math, physics. I've always enjoyed understanding how you find patterns in information and, and extract and find the signal uh, and get away from the noise. No, that's great. So um, walk us through what HEAP does. It, it sounds like it's in that, in that ecosystem. Walk us, walk us through what you do with Heap. You bet. So the way Heap works, uh, Heap is a platform used by businesses to help uh, help those businesses understand how their customers are interacting with their web and mobile uh, properties. And essentially, the way Heap works is it collects massive amounts of data, essentially all the interactions that someone might have with a website or with a mobile application. 
pulls all that in. You can think of it almost like a digital vacuum cleaner. So it captures that data, uh, then applies data science to that data set to look for the hidden gems, to look for the needle in the haystack, to understand which elements of those journeys are most relevant, uh, are working well, are working poorly, and then surface those hotspots uh, to the user. And then finally, uh, once you've found something of interest, we use technologies to help you then zoom in and observe what's happening at those points of interest. Wow. So and that's, so you, that's essentially what it does. And it's a subscription model. It is a subscription model. So a classic SaaS model, um, you know, from a go-to-market and pricing standpoint, there are dependencies on the volume of data that we're capturing, so that drives a lot of the pricing, but essentially, yeah, this is a classic B2B SaaS uh, subscription. Oh, that's great. So um, you measure your growth by the increase in um, ARR or from year to year? Or how, how, do you, how do you measure your, um, the, you know, how yeah, do you, the, how the, do the, you know the your business? being investors? Sure. So uh, we so, yeah, very straightforward in terms of measuring our growth. Uh, it is in terms of, of ARR. So we're looking at you know, the growth of customers, uh, the ARR, the revenue being generated by those customers and how that's growing year to year. So uh, though there are many other indicators, such as uh, how much data are we collecting? Those are um, you know, related, obviously, to the customers we're bringing on, the size of those customers and the way that they're consuming and using heat. Uh, but ultimately, all of that translates into revenue and error. No, that's great. Um, so you were um, were one of our first beta users for a uh, assessment test we called the super, uh, CEO Superpower, and you <laughs> you graded out, or your your uh, your result was as a strategist, which mm. is fabulous for any CEO. But the idea is to figure out which one you naturally do. Can you walk me through how? Um, how you view the world through the lens of strategy or strategist? Sure. In terms of how uh, I approach the world as a strategist? Yeah. So, so some, like some people are, um, you think that there's dealmaker CEOs. You say, oh, every CEO is mm -hmm. making deals. But is that not your natural tendency or your strong suit? Or there's others that are um, introverts or extroverts or uh, efficiency gurus or there's all kinds. You graded out as a strategist. Is that is that a good fit yep. for you? And how, how does that play into your day-to-day -day approach to things? I think that's a reasonable description of me. And I, and I, I do remember taking the, um, the superpowers test. The way I think of um, how I approach the world as a, uh, as, as a strategist is I tend to consume a lot of data and information, whether that's quantitative data about how the business is performing, qualitative data in the form of talking to customers, just hearing what they're saying, uh, mm -hmm. talking to teammates, particularly those who are close to, the, to doing the work on product or close to our customers, and then synthesizing that and looking for patterns and trying to come up with the, uh, a way to deliver value in a differentiated way to customers based on those patterns. So that's largely how I'm wired. I think that's a reason that I've moved from different functions between functions over time, product, customer success, marketing, and then you know, later CEO and COO. 
um, because I tend to look for those patterns across the organization, across customers, across industries, uh, and try and figure out, okay, given all of that, how do you win? It's interesting. So the, the question we, we like to ask people about uh, some of these unnatural talent, can you not, not do that? Like, are you like a dog and a bone on this and uh, you're, you're magnetically attracted to it? Or is this just something, it's a discipline that you've learned to do? It's, like, it's an interesting question. I'd say it is naturally what I'm attracted to. It's naturally how I think. It's naturally how I approach my job and more broadly how I approach life, like looking for patterns. Yeah. I would, yeah. I would, I would say, though, that one of the things I've learned it's almost the, the to protect myself and my teams from that tendency is there's a in the context of running a company, there's a time and a place for building a strategy. There's a time, place and methodology for testing a strategy. And then there are times when you need to maintain a stable strategy and execute, you know, basically give the strategy a chance. Um, and it can be quite disruptive to teams if you are continually reevaluating and changing your strategies. You'll never find out if you have a good strategy or you may be, uh, you know, the um, uh, perfect, maybe the enemy of the good. You have a good strategy, you're in search of the ever perfect strategy. So I have learned that though my tendency is to continue to look for the perfect, that once we have something that it's reasonable to assume is good, and now I shift and try and shift the company's focus to execution. You know, let's, let's execute yeah. against the strategy and give it and give it a chance. That's it's an interesting description too, because it's when do you, when do you uh, slow down and execute, and when do you pour on the gas? That's uh, it's, timing is a big thing. Companies don't do it as near nearly as well as they could or should. I think there are signals you can see in the business. I believe that show that your strategy is working. You need to continue to execute, or maybe improve your execution. There are other signals you can get which show that perhaps we don't have a good strategy and continuing to execute uh, with more discipline may not serve us well. It's sort of like running, you know, running into a wall over and over again. Uh, you'll knock yourself out. Um, so you have to have the ability and, and the, and the um, measurement in place to understand which state are you in. No, that's, that's interesting. So I, I'm curious then, how do you also, I'm sure you have a leadership philosophy or an approach that you use that uh, impacts values, how do you marry that with the strategic side? A few, a few, few thoughts to bring those together as it relates to culture and strategy So, and, um, and leadership. So uh, as it relates to leadership and bringing that into culture and strategy, I have a belief and, I, and I'm humble enough uh, to recognize there's no one way to lead, but the, the models that I've and the people that I've worked with that I've most admired and tried to emulate combine a couple of things. One is um, accountability, and then the other is empathy. Uh, and sometimes I've, I've been in organizations that spike on one or the other, so very strong in accountability, but not much empathy, or very strong on empathy and support, but not a high degree of accountability. And either of those extremes can be dysfunctional. Uh, so I believe what you want is to create an environment with your leadership team where you, you have plenty of both. So it's clear what we're trying to achieve. We're accountable for those outcomes, uh, but we treat each other with respect. Uh, we give each, other, give each other direct feedback. We support each other on that journey. 
Um, and then you have the opportunity, I believe, to create sustainable success because people are in an environment that they believe is healthy. Uh, and you're, if you're executing well, you know, doing it in a way that creates um, good outcomes. So in your, in your spectrum where you've got empathy and accountability in balance or in combination, mm-hmm. there's room for you to make a mistake as long as you get back on track, but they can't take advantage of uh, too much um, grace or, em- or empathetic uh, reaction. Yeah. You still have to, you still have to do both of them. Yeah. So, so my belief on that, and, and I've talked to my team a lot about this, is that on the accountability side, you want to ensure that success is clearly and well-defined and well-communicated. Let's, it could be as simple, as simple as or straightforward as success is related to hitting a sales outcome, you know, selling a certain amount of product a certain amount of time or in a, in a quarter or a year could be shipping a certain product or feature, but you know, whatever it is, is clearly defined and well-communicated, I believe, broadly to the entire company. And then to your question, John, let's say we're unsuccessful in hitting one of those targets, the product doesn't ship on time or to the desired, you know, it doesn't produce the outcomes that we thought that it would or should, and or sales misses, or you know, pick another, pick another metric, demand generation doesn't produce enough inbound um, opportunity. Then I think it's important, one, to just publicly acknowledge that and start with, hey, we said the goal was X, we achieved Y, and Y was less than X. So we start with, and the person who is accountable for this was me or you or this team. So we, we start with just clear accountability, public transparency. And then where I tend to go as a leader immediately, you know, assuming that the person who owns that outcome is uh, owning it, saying, yes, that's that's on me. Uh, you know, we were supposed to ship that uh, at the end of the quarter and we missed it. Then I go to uh, learning and why. Like, okay, so so why did we miss this target? And then what I look for is understanding at the root cause level. You know, have you done your homework or do we need as a team to do homework to understand that root cause? So there's accountability. There's then basically, you know, root cause or debrief analysis or assessment. And then, so now you've got another shot which is let's take what we learned. And then what you're looking for is you don't obviously want to see a pattern of the same types of misses over and over again. So in the next quarter, we also don't ship on time. And yet we debrief and we look at root causes and is it the same root cause or a different root cause? Do we fix the, the, the problems from last quarter? Yet another quarter happens and you miss. Now you have a trend uh, and that is a performance issue that, that needs to be reconciled. But that's that's the pattern. I guess, I guess that's the negative pattern. But that's how I like to balance the two, rather than simply you missed and uh, you know now it's a militaristic environment. You know you must leave the organization. I don't think that's the path to greatness. I, I love the combination because it's um, you're still you still have to produce results. And oh, by the mm-hmm. way, we're respectful about that because I don't know yeah. about you if 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 I'm if I do a good job on decision making or execution seven out of 10 times, I'm going to win plenty, mm-hmm. plenty. That means there's still 30% of the time where I either didn't keep my promise or I felt, you know, I was, uh, I had to, I was late or whatever. If yeah. there's room for both, I would imagine that that creates a, a good learning or an ambition environment as opposed to a fear-based environment. I think it does. In fact, the word they use, John, that I use a lot, um, 
in our environment is respectful. So one of our values is actually called respectful candor. And we've mm -hmm. done a lot of work around building uh, out a definition of what that means and even training the entire company and how to practice it. And the idea is the two words are carefully put together. Candor yep. meaning we, we don't shy away from direct feedback and we don't shy away from the hard conversations. Uh, so we lean into them, but we do so in a respectful way. We assume that you're competent. We assume that you're well-intentioned. We assume that you want to be successful, uh, okay. which is easy to say. It's actually sometimes hard to do because it can be a, a natural tendency to assume uh, a negative intent of someone. Hey, why did that salesperson sell that product and say we had that feature? Well, let's let's assume that person actually didn't do something malicious or malevolent. Let's go understand how that happened and debrief it and ensure it doesn't happen again. So have a, you know, a respectful but candor, um, uh, candorous conversation. It's, um, it's interesting in the work, in the work I do with companies, it's amazing how many of them have copied the idea of radical candor. And when mm -hmm. I see in, uh, they, there's two, they usually do that one and psychological safety, psychological yep. safety. I've never had a playbook for that. That's you don't, you don't just say, Oh, we're going to be, yay. We're going to be all about psychological safety. It's not a thing right. that you can purchase, but the radical candor, it's funny. Most of them are just, they're just ugly, brutal with each other. It's not, it's not helpful because if they say, well, we're going to need some radical candor here, everybody just winces and goes, okay, they're going to, they're going to throw things at me and spit at me and, <laughs> and mock me or whatever. Right. And they call it permission to do so. Yeah, yeah. The, the program that we use, John, is called, um, it's one that a training program went through a long time ago, and it's still in existence today called Crucial Conversations. I'm not yeah. sure if you've heard of that. So yeah. there's, a, there's a book that was published, and then they've I, they created a consulting firm where they come out and do training. So we make that a, a required training, basically like a certification for yeah. every single person at our company. And we've extracted a few norms from that that uh, really have uh, changed and the culture in a good way. And, and, and that's been a stable change, something that we've been able to maintain. So I'm, I'm fascinated with this idea of who's scaling, who's not, and why. Um, mm. talk, me, talk me through the um, scalability of that um, intersection between respectful and, and candor or the, the mm. I can't remember what kind of, con, con, was it, what are the conversations called the book? Uh, crucial. Whatever you, crucial. Crucial conversation. Yeah. Is it, does that make, is that easier to scale? Do you think? I mean, obviously you're not comparing, you're not running three models, but. Uh... Yeah, there's, it's, it's not easy to scale. So I remember my first experience yeah. as a CEO. Not easy at all. Um, no. And I remember when I started as first time CEO, one of the reasons that I wanted to be a CEO is because I had a point of view on culture and leadership that I wanted to implement. And I thought that being in a CEO role was a good place because I could do that across the companies. That was a big part of my personal motivation. And what I learned was that when I had discussions like this one that we're having right now at, let's say, an all hands, there's not much in general to object to at, this, at the, at the descriptive, descriptive level. Like most, if you were to say to most people, would you like to be in an environment where we operate in this way? You know, nine out of 10, if not 10 out of 10, will, in my experience, will say, sure. What I learned, though, is that practicing that, one, actually is a skill set, like the, because it matters when you're in intense, emotional, high stakes situations, 
And when that's happening, that's when people tend to be less comfortable with candor and less weather giving, <laughs> you know, uh, being candor in the, the information they're providing or in the information that they're receiving. Um, and there are skills in actually how you present facts, how you present something that's not a fact, but it's your interpretation of a fact, which can be right or wrong. So my learning as this first time CEO is, wow, everyone says they want to do this, but it's actually quite difficult. So what that turned into for me was two things to make it scalable. So now back to your question. One is actually skills-based training. So that's where I went to the crucial conversations and said, all right, we need to actually treat this as a skill, just like marketing is a skill, sales is a skill, uh, building coding is a skill, interacting this way is a skill. So we're going to train on it and make it a formal training. And it's something you have to you know, complete and be certified on. Um, and then the other piece I've learned is to inject that the importance of this capability in terms of scalability into three different points in the employee journey. So for me, it's become now part of recruiting. So I have one interview for every single job in the company that's just about values and it focuses largely on this. So even though the person hasn't been through our training, I look for people who are predisposed to interacting in this way. Because it's tough to change everything that's come up till now in someone's life. Like if this Mm -hmm. is just not how they want to interact, it's unlikely that it's a good use of our company's time to try and change them. So first, it's part of the interview process. Then it's part of the onboarding process and we do the training. Then it's part of the promotion process. So evaluation and promotion. So if you're going to, so, you know, no process is perfect, but I've, what I've seen now in terms of scalability, if you're looking at this, you know, at all three of those points, when you're hiring, when you're onboarding, when you're doing performance evaluations every quarter, six months, year, however long that is, it actually has teeth because it impacts your ability to be promoted and increase compensation. Now, I mean, your, it's, your values, are, in my view, it's always a journey. You're never at the destination. You never have a perfect, culturally perfect company. Um, but the likelihood that you're doing more good things goes up and the likelihood that you're doing more bad things goes down. It's um, um, your friend of mine, uh, the way he descri- describes scaling is your company's ability to solve problems at a faster and, and more efficacious pace than other people mm-hmm. in your industry. So if we're both in the same industry and we can yeah. result, because what's, what's, what, what's known is the problems you take on ambitiously of your own choosing and then yeah. all the dumpster fire that gets dumped on you, how quickly can you do that? It, it's interesting that this idea of uh, how to converse, how to interact, yep. uh, accountability, accountability, empathy, I suspect is a great recipe for scaling because it allows you to solve problems faster because you don't get bent out of shape about who screwed up. That's not, that's not the point. That's, you want, you want to right. scapegoat? I screwed up. That's great. So we're done with that conversation. Now, how do we solve the problem? And it's amazing. Exactly. How many teams Get caught I think your in. friend's definition is a good one. They're basically, who can solve problems better and faster? Which, yeah. if whoever has that capability in theory, that's a competitive advantage, you know, in the market well, it, in the world. And it's one yeah. that's very hard to replicate, right? Like, if, how would you know another organization is solving problems better than you? You can see their product, you can see their pricing, um, but not the engine that produces it. Well, I, I saw it. It was interesting to be able to 
compare your industry versus mine versus somebody else's during the pandemic, because when the global logistics quagmire hit, everybody yep. had the same problem. They said, we either can't get uh, paper towels for the kitchen in our, in our workspace, or we can't yep. get chips out of Taiwan. Either way, how did, how did people solve that problem? Cause it, cause it was the same platform for everybody. The whole world shut down. You think, Oh wow. Um, and it was interesting to see the, it was like a natural experiment because you, now you got a case study and how, how, how are you exercising resourcefulness? Because everybody is, is you could say we got screwed. Yeah. But so did everybody yeah. else. So did we get screwed to we wear saying mask? No. Um, and there were some great success stories that came out of that of people that just said, yeah, let's find, uh, let's find the way forward or let's actually invent a new industry out of this. Um, it was very, fa that, that's when I worked with that concept more and more. And I thought, yeah, some people are really, really just much better suited to do it. So, um, the way I've talked yeah. about this sometimes at company meetings, company all hands is I say something to the effect of, look, what we're doing is hard. Um, not necessarily uniquely hard, but building companies through the stage is very difficult. We're doing so through very unusual economic times. Whether you were to go back to the pandemic or what's happened the last couple of years in B2B SaaS growth and valuations and very challenging time. And what we're trying to do with our culture and specifically this way of mediating conflict and, and dealing with hard decisions is to enable everyone in the organization to be more effective in that stressful environment. And that's how we become successful, basically, by giving you the tools. And so, as you said, hey, we're not going to spend a lot of time pointing fingers. If if I own that and I missed it, hey, that's on me. Okay, be really clear. The goal was X. The outcome was Y. Y is less than X. Now let's go figure out why. Let's solve it. Let's get back to let's get back. And let's, to and let's make a new promise and get forward. And get moving forward. Yeah. Right. And let's get going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. interesting. Um. So obviously you've got a a career in. Um, early stage companies, and so that's yeah. a that's always a challenging and rewarding place to be as well. I'm it curious. Um, we you know we we hear the success stories and everybody puts them online. I, you know, three days after I went, I, I went 100 million in AR, and you go really and oh, and then buy my system. Eh, but nobody believes that. But everybody mm -hmm. has a what I call a, a, a dumpster fire story of a mistake or a misstep or a blind spot mm. that they hit at some point that actually turned into a uh, something useful later on. Yeah. If you have a, if you have your version of that, uh, the, the thing that you just, you know, kick yourself, could have kicked yourself, but you say, you know, it actually, I've never forgotten that. And I've, I've actually built platforms off this or yeah. walk me through yours. I, I do have one. So my experience goes back to the first company that I joined uh, after I went to business school. I was part of the founding team. So there from day one. And very, very talented name of the company is Financial Engines, still exists today. It's a very successful company. They went public and then went private. Um, financial technology business. A lot of talent there. Uh, got off to a good start. Lots of good, high quality investors. So we had lots of opportunity to be successful. And over, and I, my role was product. So I was the head of first product manager and then the head of product at that point in my career. Uh, and over the first, oh, let's call it three years, we pursued in succession uh, three different businesses. Uh, the first was a B2B business selling our services 
uh, to companies. And then we said, ah, that that got off to an okay start and then started to slow. And we said, well, let's let's do this in B2C. We get the company out of the way. We're going to sell our services directly um, over the internet, you know, directly to two individuals. That also got off to a, a hot start, good marketing, get the maybe some of the early earliest of the early adopters, and then that slowed. Uh, then we went back to B2B in a white label type business model. We said, well, we've got great technology. Maybe we don't understand the UI and, and all, but we've got great tech. We're going to sell that to financial service firms. Got a couple big initial orders, million dollar plus orders. You know, we were high-fiving, going to dinner, said, hey, we've cracked the code. That one slowed down too. So that led to a seminal moment that since really changed my career. So I was meeting with the CEO. We were reflecting on basically going 0 for 3. The board was losing patience, as would be appropriate at this point. I said, hey, we've given you a lot of money. You have what appears to be differentiated technology, but you've been unsuccessful building a business from this. And all three of these businesses you brought to the board with great fanfare, great excitement, and great confidence. And the CEO came to me with a fourth idea. He says, hey, and he's a brilliant guy, uh, very creative. So here's a fourth idea. And I listened to the idea and I said, you know, that is that does seem like a really good idea. However, the other three ideas also seem like really good ideas. And you and I were tied at the hip on all three of them. You're the CEO and I run products. So we have a lot of influence on success or lack of success. So I said, before we work on idea number four, and this would be the big, big pivot, almost like a reinvention of the company. So it was not a small bet. It was a big bet. I said, let me think about this and come back. And this is where the learning came in. It came back after a couple of days. And I said, you know, uh, he, his name is uh, Jeff. I said, Jeff, here's, here's my take. Um, my reflection on why we're 0 for 3. I think we've been, the word I used was scaling before we're nailing. So we're prematurely scaling our businesses when we have some positive data points. I mean, it's not as though we just are throwing money blindly at ideas, but we don't actually have a, a reason to believe these businesses are ready for scale and are sufficiently validated to be throwing all this money into feature development and marketing plans and hiring salespeople. So I said, what I'd like to do is change how we build businesses and, and build essentially an agile approach. I mean, that wasn't a term of art back then, but an agile approach, not just to product development, but to company building. And the way we did that was we built a hypothesis. And the hypothesis was, we called it a blueprint. And the hypothesis said, here's what we, who we think the customer is well-defined, what we think their customer's problem is that we're solving, what we think the key elements of our solution are, so you know, customer product solution, and what we believe the value prop is, and then the go-to-market model. But what we're going to do, which is different from what we've done in the past, is we're going to take that one-pager, so it's very lightweight. This isn't a 10-page or 100-page business plan. It's a, you know, one page, maybe a page and a half. And we're going to essentially try to pre-sell it. We're going to go to the market, and we're going to meet with customer after customer after customer that looks like this description on this piece of paper. And we're going to try to, we're going to see if they have these problems. We're going to try and sell this solution. We're going to sell it with this value proposition. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see if we can start to generate interest and even advance orders before we write any code, before we hire anybody. So a small team, five people, seven people. And we found not surprisingly that many elements of our blueprint were wrong. Uh, many were right. We iterated that over a course of 90 days. Then we started building. And 
And that led to a philosophical change in how we brought products to market, how we uh, metered our spend. That company then became very successful, went public off that fourth idea, and now has a, you know, the neighborhood, I think, of approaching a billion in revenue actually off that idea. So my learning was nail it before you scale it. And scaling is not, scale is not determined by a dollar value or a, 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 a metric. It's, it's, it's determined by repeatability. Are you at a point where you have a consistent definition of a customer, a problem, a solution, and a value proposition that you can bring to market? And then now you have something that has at least some degree of, quote, scale. So that was my learning. And then that was what I did with it. I, I love that you turned it into a, a framework that you can still use today because the, the, that framework makes perfect sense. Um, I'm also curious, was your CEO, I think you referred to him as Jeff, was Jeff a, um, a promotional or a sales or revenue um, mentality or was or an ideator? Or what, what was it that it was like, yeah, this one's, a, this one's even better. Let's go sell this one when you went, because you guys could both agree you went, uh, yeah. for three. So by, by function, he was like me early in career. This is a while ago. And um, yeah. I think he was one year ahead of me at, at Stanford Business School. So he didn't actually have a, a functional expertise. He wasn't from product or from sales or from marketing. But, his, uh, but the answer to your question is, as a leader, his superpower um, I'm not sure if this would, is on the list of the super, the kind of the superpower tests you provided. We'll add it. We'll add it. Yeah. <laughs> extremely high, like off the charts on creativity. So his ability to generate new, interesting ideas was um, you know, as good or better as I've ever seen in a leader. Sure. Um, uh, so that, so that's where he, so not surprisingly, his ability to come and say, hey, these ideas didn't work. How about a fourth? And you listen to the fourth guy. That's a good idea, too. Um, core competence was not so much uh, how to rigorously test those ideas. Right. Um, but that's where, you know, that, that's where he fit. It's, it's funny. We have a, we've always had a saying that uh, any positive attribute, attribute in excess becomes a liability. And too much creativity, yeah. you reinvent your product just because you're really creative and you go, we don't, we need, we need to decide, can we sell it first before we uh, do version 2.0? We've, we've sold three copies of it. Let's not do version 2.0. Yes. You have to protect yourself and your company from yourself in that case, if you're, if your superpower is creativity. Yeah. At uh, certain times. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fabulous. Um, walk me through, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated with this idea of both talent, but also risk profile. Is risk profile that is it something like you had it since you were a two-year-old? Like you, like you have kids, you saw one one of them was a complete yeah. daredevil, and the other one was a um, <laughs> measure twice and cut once person. You think, okay, were that within? Walk me through your own risk profile, and do you do you sense that you've always had that uh, approach to life that shows up in your risk profile, or is this something you developed because of your your career? Mm. It's an interesting question to think about risk profile. I was talking to my, my son about this. He's got, he's more risk seeking. He's an entrepreneur, founder. Um, he's in his mid twenties. So I, what I've learned about my risk profile is that, uh, on the one hand, I like to be in environments where I have, uh, the ability to drive disproportionate impact and have 
a lot of control uh, of resources and decision making. I don't mean that in a megalomaniac way, but just uh, I don't like to be constrained. And yeah. I found that that tends to that environment tends to correlate with smaller organizations, which inherently there's there's more risk in them. Uh, and I had too. yeah, more opportunity. And I've generally had enough confidence in my ability to 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 execute that I'm comfortable in that environment. But if you think about risk as a you know as a continuum, which it is as a spectrum, you know one extreme you've got. Well, I'm not sure it's the extreme, but towards the extreme, you'd be people who who are serial founders. And I haven't been a you know, the founder. I've joined very early uh, and then tend to go to growth stage companies. And I think what I've learned now is I've reached a point where I think my skill set has reached a point where I would be comfortable doing that because I believe I have a reason to have confidence in my ability to do it because of all the learned skills. Uh, so uh, like a zero to 10, where 10 is daredevil, uh, entrepreneur, founder, zero is, I guess, in the old days, go to IBM, uh, work your way up or the government, you know, year by year and then get your pension. I've probably landed at a, a seven, eight. And perhaps paradoxically, as I've aged, it's gone up as I've gained more confidence that, yeah, actually, I think I could do this. Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder if it's gone up because you, you're you more willing to bet on yourself because you know yourself better as opposed to saying, I'm in uncharted waters here. <laughs> I remember being in my late 20s joining when I joined this company, Financial Engines, and thought about someday being a CEO. And I looked at what our CEO is doing, thinking, you know, I'd love to do that, but I don't think I'm ready. And I remember mm. explicitly thinking that to myself, like I could see myself in that role. I think I'll be in that role someday, somewhere. But I don't have a, I don't have a timeline. I'm not in a rush. And if someone called me today and said, "Hey Ken, do you want to be the founder and CEO of X?" Rightly or wrongly, my internal compass said, "I don't. I think I have too much to learn right now to do that well. So I'm going right. to keep learning till I think I'm ready." Yeah, that's uh, that's both strategic, but also what I would call discernment. That's pretty pretty wise for 20s because it yeah, usually usually it's especially if you're out in Silicon Valley. You just, right. it's uh, alpha male ambition. You go, yeah, I should take it. Yeah, they offered they offered me a they offered me a crappy startup <laughs> that I could make my mark, or I could get buried. Yeah, that's not so good. Yeah, my answer is <laughs> not the sexy one, but it is it is how I view the world. So I had it, some degree that's of self awareness at that point. I, I, I love that. It's it's uh, fabulous because uh, my own experience is that the uh, the egg the average age. Sorry, the average risk profile on a spectrum is less than five. Five being risk, uh, you start risk tolerant or risk seeking and below five risk averse. But the average is mm -hmm. just below five, like 4.6. And you think, mm -hmm. those are the people that are exiting? Yeah. Because what, they, what they've all told me they do really well, especially, they, they weren't all that, but the average was that, which so there are even some less, is that they, they knew at some point they're going to have to put all their chips on the table and bet the entire company on an idea or a product or a, like um, whatever it was, they had to. And when that time came, they would, but they weren't going to do that at the wrong time because they would, they would double check and, and, um, and yep. they, they would take as much risk out as they could before they did that. So that the yeah. tendency were more exits. And I thought I would never have, figured that out on my own, but it makes perfect sense because you, you do, you think in terms of a 10 risk profile or the people that create unicorns. 
maybe yeah. not. Yeah, you're right. Maybe not. Yeah, there's there's a more systematic approach than people might think. Yeah. Um, last question. We we have a little fun with our, our guests uh, with our last question. That is, if a National Geographic film crew followed you around in junior high school, seventh, eighth, maybe ninth grade, <laughs> and then uh, turned it into a documentary on who you might become, like we could then we could go to mm-hmm. Vegas and bet on that kid and say, oh yeah, that eighth grader. <laughs> Yeah, he would have turned out as a CEO or as a founder or as an entrepreneur or as a multi-success. What would we have? What would the documentary have showed about you in junior high? That's interesting. So junior high school. So I'll 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 frame it this way. So if you were to look at me today, and John, you and I talked about this before we kicked off the session. Yeah, part of my life is what we talked about. It's you know, my my business and profession and career, something I've put obviously a lot of time and effort into. The other is outside of work. Um, I'm an active triathlete and have been an athlete or into athletics really my whole life. And my life has, I found different ways to stitch them together and do them both, you know, from when I was uh, before junior high school to, to now. So if you go back to junior high uh, and extend that, there are two things that I was doing. One was I was building my own businesses. So I had two paper routes, babysitting, lawn mowing, uh, shoveling snow, dis- distributing flyers throughout the neighborhood, you know, call me if you need any of these things. And then I was also a runner. And the way I brought them together was uh, so in this rural area that I lived, the paper, I had two paper routes and they were covered about a four plus mile area. So it wasn't a quick just walk around the block. Yeah. I mean, four miles takes a while. So the way I did that was I had two shopping carts, both filled with newspapers as a little kid, small kid, and I would each experiment with different ways to get through the neighborhood and would run through the neighborhood with my two shopping carts and time myself. And each day I was trying to figure out, set a new personal best for paper delivery time <laughs> on this 4.2 mile you know, course that I was doing. And then it would get down to, okay, maybe I go to that spot take five newspapers in my hand, run to those five houses, come back to the shopping cart, go across this yard, carry them. Then, and then, you know, kept doing you, that and you, doing that. So, were you a fence hopper too? Would you, fe- would you hop fences or could you I, not do I, that? I, in that neighborhood I did. Yeah. But that was tough to do with the shopping cart. So I had to do that and leave the shopping cart, hop a fence, make sure there wasn't a dog in the yard and then you know, drop off and then, and then run back. So, um, I think that reflects a little bit of who I've become. become. Uh, Nothing else that would have been an entertaining National Geographic. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm picturing a a 2024 version of a product launch, basically using that framework and going, right, it's it's him and his team with a shopping cart going, all right, let's try it. Let's do some A-B. It's just A-B testing. Team, team, you you do it this way, and B team, you try it this way, and and then we'll switch tomorrow and see see which one's and there was a there was a fitness piece, right? So I had to get you know fast and strong to carry those two shopping carts around the neighborhood and try and you know beat my time from yesterday. I love it. I think it's I think it's fabulous, and it's uh yeah, it was a paper. There are no paper boys anymore, but uh, no, you and I could yeah. have been twin twin sons of different mothers because same thing. We, we, our whole family was the, the ones that did all of that stuff, and we babysat on the weekends because they paid you. It was like, what am I going to do right. at fourteen? Yeah, I'm going to watch TV. Maybe. Uh, oh, they're gone, and the two-year-old went to sleep. All right, they're going to pay me to do that. I'm going to go watch TV at their house and get paid for it. <laughs> yeah, it was an easy sell. <laughs> That's great. That's great. 
Well, Ken, thank you so much for sharing your uh, your insight, your wisdom. I, I'll never, uh, in fact, I'll I'll uh, I'll canonize it into a framework, and then I'll send you the work, and and you'll be attributed to it. The um, scaling before nailing. I I love that. Uh, you you get the gra- you get that pretty graphically. It's 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 perfect. So I appreciate you uh, uh, coming on the show today and sharing your wisdom and expertise. And for our regular listeners. Uh, Tune in next time for Genius at Scale. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for hosting, John. Great to spend time together. Take care. Thanks for joining me on another powerful episode of Genius at Scale. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to continue your journey into the world of scaling, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review and let the world know how the insights of these amazing CEOs helped you. Also, if you're hungry to discover more counterintuitive strategies to scale your business, don't forget to grab a copy of my book, The Little Book of Big Scale, where I've compiled the wisdom and insights from CEOs who have successfully scaled their companies against all odds. Or you can go to our website, www.evokinggenius.com backslash book. Thanks again for tuning in. Go forth and scale.